0: I want to uh, share a praise this morning. Um, our uh, building team met with our contractor this past week, and uh, good news, our exterior doors have arrived at the vendor. <laughs> okay, which uh, if you did not know, all the work depends on those doors, and so those are in. Uh, the install date's a little further down the road, but basically interior bricking gut or exterior bricking the doors, flooring, finished electrical, plumbing, doors and trim, all the building work is Going to be scheduled from here on out to the end of March and um, and probably early April. uh, And in a perfect world, you know, it'll be soon after that. And then we have some decor to do, too. But anyway, the doors are in, and work will start happening around here, and it'll happen fast, okay? So something good to share with you this morning uh, on the Youth and uh, Children's uh, Ministry Center. And I kind of wanted to share that this morning as I enter into this. I'd like you to imagine this scene from the church's toddler class, okay? Imagine a small group of children ages one to three years old gathered around their teacher is holding the Bible, and as each child touches or pats that Bible, the teacher repeats this phrase for the children to say with her, the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God, and they do that in that class. The Bible is the word of God. A pretty basic principle. We just sang about it, right? Uh, The pretty basic truth principle. Wouldn't you say, church family? Yeah, pretty basic in our faith, but let me tell you just how significant that truth is. It's so significant that if a child does not have that truth, that the Bible truly is God's word and that it's trustworthy and reliable, then the chances are extremely high that that child, when they're grown up, will not hold a biblical worldview and will not seek to engage Christianity through a church that believes the Bible to be the true word of God they will not. And that's what uh, the Bible claims to be, the very word breathed w- very words breathed by God. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 our theme verse for today reads says this. It says, "All scripture is God-breathed," right? "All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, co- um, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." In other words, the Bible is God's very word, okay? It's his very word, and it's trustworthy and reliable, and as believers, it should be the absolute authority in our life. Yes? Yeah, okay, yeah. And, and yet, a shocking new report just came out from the Cultural Research Center at the Arizona Christian University, which found that the percentage of Americans who believe that the Bible is the inspired, true word of God is down more than 21 percentage points since the year 2000. A 50% decrease in belief in the Bible that is trustworthy and true, which directly corresponds to the 50% decrease of Americans who now hold a biblical worldview. Now, just how many Americans hold a biblical worldview? Well, the numbers are going to shock you, and I mean shock you. The numbers nationwide of Americans who hold a biblical worldview is only 6%. 6% of Americans. And yet... Uh, only 14% of a church attendees. Yes, 41% will say that they believe the Bible is true, but when you shake it all out, only 14% hold a biblical worldview. Now, that 14% of church attendees goes up to 21% if they're from an evangelical church like, like we are, okay? The, 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 the survey says the problem starts in the pulpit, by the way. Only 41% of senior ministers nationwide hold a biblical worldview, according to the study. 28% of associate ministers and eight or nine percent of children and youth ministers hold a biblical worldview. Not surprising, considering many churches have left the inerrancy of Scripture. They no longer many churches no longer believe the Bible to be reliable. Okay, uh, uh, they have instead opted for more cultural interpretations of the Bible. The numbers go on, and what we learn is as a person's trust in the Bible declines, so does the likelihood that they will develop a biblical worldview. For example, born-again Christians constitute one-third of America's population, 33%, but less than one out of five hold a biblical worldview, or 19%. I figured that while low is triple the national average, right? Another storyline, teens and individuals in their 20s read the Bible less often than other adults, attend church less often, and are more likely to attend churches that reject the authority of the Bible. That's the church that they'll choose. In addition, adults under the age of 30 are both the least likely to have a biblical worldview and are less likely to engage Christianity through churches that believe the Bible is the true word of God. Aren't you glad you dragged yourself out of bed on this fine morning to come in and hear all this good news? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have some good news, but uh, before I give it to you, let me share one more report. Same cultural research center. It reports the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of American parents today lack a biblical worldview and a robust faith that can pass, they can pass on to their children, which could dramatically hamper the spiritual development of the next generation. And that's why we're focusing on the next generation. A full 9 out of 10 parents of children, 13 and under, have a, the, the survey says, do not have a biblical worldview, they have a muddled worldview that mixes a variety of alternative life philosophies, most of which have little to do with biblical truth. So they're a mixed bag, right? The latest findings from the American Worldview Inventory of 2022, a national study of American parents conducted by CRC Director of Research, George Barna, and we've been trusting George Barna for generations, show that two-thirds, 67% of parents of preteens claim to be Christian, but only 2% p- possess an actual biblical worldview, those under 30. So the good news, well, like many other evangelical churches, I, I would tell you, we have a ministry staff and teachers who not only believe the Bible to be true, but also hold a biblical worldview, and it's my belief that many of you are the same. You know, we sang about it this morning, and you sang it with gusto. We believe the word of God's true, and it's, and it's living, and it's for us today, but there's a battle. What I want you to know is there is a battle being waged, Right? Don't miss it. There's a battle being waged, and that battle's going on for the hearts and soul of our youngest, okay? And you will hear our children's ministry team, I've said it many times before, they just beat me up with this, that a child's worldview is set by the time they are 9 or 10 years old, and then after that, it's only refined to a degree thereafter. So the point is, we're in this together. Individuals, parents, families, the church who comes alongside their families, uh, we must pass on our belief that the Bible is God's word, right? It is God's word, and it's the absolute trustworthy and reliable that we must preach from our pulpits, teach in our classrooms, and walk it and speak it in our homes. And thus the title of today's message, Why We Believe the Bible is Trustworthy and Reliable. I mean, to be confident enough to make that statement that the Bible's trustworthy and true, what evidence do we actually have to make such a confident statement? Well, I'm going to give you some this morning, and so if you're a note taker, you can start taking notes. The first is, the first place piece of evidence, uh, number one is the Bible's claims that are credible, okay? Because the Bible makes claims that are credible. Case in point, over 400 times in the Old Testament alone, it says, thus saith the Lord right? Thus saith the Lord. In other words, a prophet of God comes along and claims he has a message from God. And this is what God said. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. Okay. And then comes a command or a word of instruction or a prophecy about future events. Now someone say, well, that's not a big deal. Uh, People make false claims all the time. People will fabricate and embellish in any number of ways to get attention. I mean, a couple months ago, preacher man, didn't you just give us a whole list of individuals who predicted the return of Jesus and they were wrong? Yes, I did, and, and, and you know, uh, sometimes they did it more than once, and journalists today will do that kind of thing all the time. They slant the news or state on, you know, things they suspect are true, but really don't back it up, only to come back and have to retract, unless, of course, you're one of those tabloid magazines, okay, uh, but then fabrication of facts is kind of what you expect. It's kind of the norm. I mean, I love those magazines. You ever look at them at the, I, I love it when it says, Elvis is still alive on Mars, See, see, you know, <laughs> satellite beams back, I'm all shook up, you know, he's alive, okay, that just cracks me up, but we know better, Elvis isn't still alive, you know, uh, to think that statement is credible, no, okay, it's just assumed most of the, the, those papers are false, okay, there might be an element of truth in there time to time, but no, we know that, but that's not the mindset of ancient Israel and to say the year 1400 BC because according to Deuteronomy 18 to make a wrong statement or prediction about the future well it it it, it was if it was deemed not credible it, it was a punishable offense it was a punishable offense if you, if that prophecy proved wrong the punishment was death in other words last week we talked about dropping the rocks they didn't do that they stoned them to death they stoned them to death. David Faust, former president of Cincinnati Bible College slash university and editor of the Christian, former editor of the Christian Standard Magazine, once said, To say, Thus say the Lord, was a bold claim that was putting your life on the line. Right? You had to get it right. Or they kill you now here's the point the point is the bible doesn't contain the frivolous dribbling of people who enjoyed hearing their own voice getting a little tension no they were people who actually spoke on behalf of god and if you think about it they had to because they really had no written record to go by because see they were living it out they were living it out god by the spirit was working through men to unfold his will and unfold his word through the experiences that they were facing in that day now We've already read in our theme verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is God-breathed as in the spirit-inspired words of God, right? So the Bible claims to be inspired because, well, because it is, okay? I mean, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 when he writes, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. In other words, this is not some man-made plan, but rather this is a God-made plan, okay? Now, many of you are uh, familiar with people in our century uh, who have been skeptical of the Bible and its claims. Some have even tried to disprove it. Uh, People like C.S. Lewis, uh, the writer Ben-Hur, Lou Wallace, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, Chuck Colson, Lee Strobel, and, and some others. But I mean, these are all people who studied the scriptures because they doubted the scripture, and some wanted to discredit it. And yet the more they studied, the more they believe. and as a result, they've not only become believers, but they're some of the strongest apologists in defending the authority of the Bible that we've had in our century, and some of the stuff that they've written will be in this sermon today, right? And the truth is, the Bible makes some very unusual claims, but when researched, you find that the the, the claims are true, claims that you can put to the test. For instance, in the New Testament, uh, the first people to see the empty tomb after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection were ladies. It was a woman's group, okay? Uh, Now, in in our current culture, no big deal, right? Uh, In fact, in current culture, at least in Hollywood and TV, if someone's going to save the world, it's going to be a woman right it's going to be a woman uh and and today that's the way things are and so okay but not in jesus day if you're going to put together a script of how to save the world you're not going to call on a group of women to promote that okay that idea you're not okay why because women were not accepted in that culture to play that kind of role like like if you needed eyewitness account to an event like you know say a resurrection you need, you need men to witness the event, not women, because women were not considered credible witnesses. Their testimony would not carry the weight. So, only, so the only way you'd write this in, in your Bible, if you were writing it, is if it's true. All right. <laughs> I mean, if, the only way you give women the credit is if it's true, because if you're going to fabricate a story that you want people to believe, you're not going to start with, and there was a group of women witnesses that saw Jesus resurrected. Remember the road on Emmaus, the two men on the road to Emmaus, they're going like, you yeah, know, well, the women told us, but you know, we're not sure. In other words, to be an expert investigator, you would say, this just proves the Bible's not a lie, Okay. The second reason we can trust that the Bible's reliable and true is its historical accuracy. I mean, when you read about the accounts in the Bible, it's not about fictional places that you can't go to. I mean, I mean there are historical findings which continue to prove the accuracy of the Bible, sometimes down to very minute details. Case in point, for years people said, well, you know, the story of Sodom Gomorrah, Well, it can't be true because we've looked everywhere and we can't find the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know the biblical record, you know there's a good reason why you can't find those cities because like God smoked them, right? You know what I mean? He toasted them. He brought down fire and brimstone and basically destroyed those cities gone. Do you know what they do find though? Between 1964 and 1978 in that region, They unearthed over 1,700 clay tablets, and one set of those tablets contained merchant records of where different deliveries had gone, and one of the records showed a delivery of a product taken to the city of Sodom. Now, some people, even Christians years ago, said, well, you know, John is kind of inaccurate in his gospel. I mean, he talks about the Pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, and he said there's five colonnades and five porticos, and critics of the Bible back then said, well, there's no way. The claim's ridiculous. That's overkill. They, they wouldn't have built it that way. John's just embellishing. We've dug all around there, and we can't find anything like that. But you know what? In the late 19th century, they dug 40 foot deeper, and they began to uncover what they thought to be a Jewish ritual bath, but by the year 2005, they discovered one two, three, four, five colonnades and porticos, and it was then, in 2005, they knew they had finally found the pool of the Dr. John McRae, in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, says, Archaeology has not produced anything that is an absolute contradiction to the Bible, not one. On the contrary, what we have seen through time is that there have been many opinions by skeptical scholars who have kind of codified it, stated it as fact over the years as being in contradiction to the Bible, but over time, archaeology has shown them to be wrong. In other words, archaeology has only worked to prove the Bible more credible and its critics less. In Luke 3, verse 1, we read, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of some other place, and then some other guys of some other places. And, and uh, I mean, isn't that how you read it when you get to those? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you ever wonder why Luke writes like that? You know, the 15th year when so and so was in reign, and so and so was at displacing in reign. I mean, what's Luke trying to say there? Well, what, you know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, if you want to fact-check me on this, because here's where and when it happened. It was a form of dating, okay? Because during Luke's time, there wasn't any real universal calendar system. So what they did is they tie events or something that happened to a point in time of who was ruling in what city and what authority was in place. That way you could go back and fact-check it. We do the same thing today when we say, ah, the Colts were the toast of India in a backdoor uh, whose days? Peyton Manning, yeah. And the Pacers were the celebration of the NBA back when who played? Reggie Miller, yeah, two for two. And Boilermake basketball was at the top of the charts. They were on top of the pile until they lost again to Lowly IU. Too soon? You know, I don't know. Anyway, the point is, those details point to a particular event, right? Uh, at a particular time. And, and And you wouldn't do that if you're fabricating a story, right? uh you'd not you you wouldn't do that when your facts are not straight therefore by luke doing this he's saying hey what i'm telling you is credible and if you want you can go back to this time and you can check my facts and trust me the skeptics and the cynics have been checking luke's facts for centuries and luke writes uh, the things that he's written in the bible and and he's been found true claims that are credible and the third reason we we believe the bible to be trustworthy and true is it's remarkable style now you know the Bible isn't just one book. We we know that it's 66 books: 39 Old Testament, uh, 27 in the New. And it's the New Testament describes or reveals who Jesus is and what the Church is to be. Let me share uh, some of the Bible style. The Bible's written and it contains three different languages: Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written across three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written over a span of 1,500 years or nearly 60 generations. It was written by 40 different authors, most of whom didn't live in the same place or even the same time period. And yet there's this one unwavering, consistent thread through it all, and that is God the man and his whole creation being reconciled through the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says Jesus is coming. The New Testament says Jesus is here, and the rest of the New Testament says Jesus is coming again. And here's the point: anyone who ever played, did you ever play that telephone game when you were a kid? You know, like where you sit in a circle and someone starts with a, a statement or whatever, then you pass it around the circle. You, yes, yeah, okay. How's that work? Very efficient. No, no, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Yeah, it never comes back the way you start out, right? Now, you tell me, can you imagine taking 40 people and telling them to write on a controversial subject like politics or religion or God? I mean, even if you assigned them the task in the same time period, would you maintain a common theme without, you think, 40? No. Would you have something that you could always go back to for all of eternity? Probably not. Now imagine if you, were spread, if you were to spread that out over 1,500 years over so many different personalities, so many cultures. There's no way. There's no way that you get a consistent message and themes throughout the entire Bible. I mean, how is that even possible? God. It's God-breathed. It's Holy Spirit-inspired. And listen, friend, if you believe that all to be true, and it is, then it screams, this is God speaking. And that should motivate you to pick up God's word and see what he has to say. The psalmist writes, as dear pants for water, so my soul longs for your love. <laughs> what a style. Fourth reason and, that we can trust the Bible is trustworthy and true. And this one's one of my favorites. And, 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 and that is because of its indestructibility. Okay? In other words, a, and this one gives me the most hope for today. Okay? In other words, the Bible has been preserved by God. Uh, he's protected it through centuries against all enemies. Case in point, King Manasseh of Judah was born in 697 B.C. He was an evil king. Remember when we did the kings in the story, we got to the kings are going like they're all bad. Well, in, in the north they were. And he was one of, you know, uh, King Manasseh was the king of Judah, born 19 uh, or 697 B.C. Evil king, violent, ungodly, pagan man. And he was determined to destroy all the copies of the Pentuagint, you know, the first five books that Moses wrote. Why? Well. Why would he as an Israelite king want to do that, right? Uh, Because those books contained all the laws of God that he, the king, had been breaking, okay? So what he did was he destroyed all the copies that he could get a hold of, and he got every single one of them except for one that was hidden in the wall of the temple. And that's all it took. That's all it took for just one to remain. Mark 13, 31 says, heaven and earth will pass away. We sang about it this morning. Uh, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass pass away now we need to remember you know when we think about ancient days that like they didn't have printing press then they didn't have the xerox machine they didn't have you know download on your kindle ipad or you know uh, a phone app where you could have you No, no the word then was handwritten on papyrus and animal skins with crude primitive writing instruments and yet we have more manuscript evidence for the bible than any other you know literary work case in point for instance we're going to put these up on the screen um uh, Aristotle wrote his poetics around 343 B.C., yeah, a- and yet the earliest copy we have is dated A.D. 1 or 1100, okay? That's nearly a 1400-year gap, only five manuscripts, ca- ca- manuscripts, one, two, three, four, five, that's it, all, that's all there is in existence, and yet does anyone question whether those are Aristotle's words? No, no. Likewise, Caesar composed the history of the Gaelic Wars between 58 and 50 B.C., and its manuscript authority rests on nine or ten copies, dating back 1,000 years after his death. Is everyone okay with the credibility of those manuscripts? These are classics. You probably studied them in school. Everybody okay with that? Yeah. Okay. No problem. Okay, now check this out. When it comes to manuscript authority of the New Testament, the abundance of material is almost embarrassing by comparison because over 20,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts are in existence today. 20,000 some dating back to less than 100 years from the time of christ that's kind of irrefutable right kind of irrefutable uh, but that doesn't stop critics and cynics from questioning what's unquestionable right it doesn't why is that well you see people have tried for years to discredit and destroy the bible in AD 303, Diocletian was the Roman emperor, and he was persecuting the church of Christ, and he wanted to destroy Christians, and he wanted to destroy the church. And this is interesting, because you know how one might do that? There's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, here's his plan. Listen carefully. Uh, he, he's going to destroy God's word. He figures, if I destroy God's word, I destroy the Christians, and I destroy their church. going to destroy his word. That was his plans. Listen carefully. Here's how he did it. He had government soldiers go door to door and confiscate all the Bibles. And then they set them on fire in this huge bonfire. And in that same year, he had a coin struck with an inscription upon it that read, The Christian religion is destroyed, and the worship of the gods, as in plural, is restored. And he thought that he'd done away with Christianity because he had done away with the scriptures. But you know what? He didn't get them all either. For ten years later, a man named Constantine came along, and he embraced Christianity. One of Constantine's first acts as emperor was to commission someone to make 50 copies of the Bible, all handwritten at government expense. So you see, there's nothing new under the sun, for throughout history, right up to this day, man has tried to destroy God's word, but he has failed because the word of God is indestructible. A fifth reason the Bible is God's inspired word it's because it's scientific and prophetic accuracy you know it bothers me when someone criticizes the christian faith or the christian or the church for their belief in the bible is god's word and many of them in one way or another claim now that science is god okay like you ever heard the talk like that like like, like you can't question science you must follow science science is our absolute authority i mean we've all heard it i, I don't have a beef with science in and of itself matter of fact I believe true science is neutral. It searches for truth, okay, true science, okay? Uh, so I'm not opposed to science, but I'm not so sure those who claim science is God are credible and trustworthy. I have, I have trouble with the people, okay? So here's some food for thought. Uh, the Greeks who were known for their thinking once asked, how is it that our world, planet Earth, sits in the heavens? What holds it up, okay? And their answer was the Greek god Atlas, who, who assigned this task for eternity as punishment, for when the titans lost the war to zeus and and the olympians you know now that's interesting enough i'm not sure it's science it's more like greek mythology but it says we don't really know (laughs) we don't really know what holds the earth up okay and 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 so that's okay okay And, and so you could argue well maybe nobody back then knew but someone did the creator of the heavens and the earth and job of the Old Testament. And Job goes back, one of the most ancient books, some think the most ancient book in the Bible. How does Job answer this question of what holds the earth up in the heavens? Job 26, seven says, he, meaning God, suspends the earth over nothing. And at a time when everybody thought the earth was flat, the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this in Isaiah 40, 22. It's describing God, and it says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth how about astronomy do you think you can count the stars (laughs) you ever try no uh well anyway the father of astronomy, g says uh which kind of makes him the world expert at that time well he thought he could count the stars so he counted 1056 stars and said that's how many there are 1056 now we know we know right and and yet we know that god promised abraham in the book of genesis way back he promised abraham that your descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky he compares the sands of the sea to the stars of the sky well, there's more than thousand fifty-six, right? And so skeptics of that scripture, way back when they read that, they laughed and said that comparison's so naive. We counted the stars. Now, now, now what there's now what they were saying was, listen, we've counted them, and there's like at this point in time, they said there's only ten thousand of them. So they raised it a bit. Okay, ten thousand. How in the world can you compare the sands of the sea to like ten thousand stars? It's a bad comparison. But then came the Hubble telescope and revealed that in the heavens there's more than 50 billion galaxies, and, and, and they have yet to this day to see to the end of God's created universe. Okay, how do we know it's God's created universe? Because clearly way back in Abraham's day, only God knew just how many stars he created. That the number of stars was far greater than the grains of sand along the sea. Far greater than only God knew. Let's look at some more scientific evidence for the Bible. Let's look at Mark 8, 22 through 25. This is a pretty familiar story. Beginning in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people thought a blind man, uh, or brought a, a blind man, and, and he begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And he had, spit on, he, he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. And Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now that miracle for years had Christian preachers and teachers squirming because how do you explain that it took Jesus two tries to pull off one miracle? Two tries for God come to earth in the flesh to completely heal one blind man. What's up with that? Thought he was all powerful, you know? Well, With modern technology and surgical procedures, we've learned a lot about the human eye, and it's given us a very different take on this story. Human eyes, you see, even when healed physically, still need training and rigorous practice before they can transmit what is real and what is not. Or in other words, when there's been a change in eyesight, the brain, in a sense, needs time to recalibrate and reprogram. And that's just like an infant. When they first open their eyes, they see for the very first time, but it's not all crystal clear just yet. Dr. Keith Mano refers to this as the post-blind syndrome, and he says, when the blind man in Mark's account of this said, I see people and they're like trees walking around, what the blind man is saying is not a poetic image. He says, it's literally a clinical description. It's the way patients often describe people after surgery. He says, it's an accurate description when the blind man who can now see says, that man and that tree, they run together, much like a tree in a treetop. The eye doctor goes on to say, this is irrefutable evidence that a miracle really did occur at Bethsaida. So if a person in 30 AD were pretending to be blind, being completely unaware of the post-blind syndrome, he would have reported that Jesus gave him perfect vision. His point that you're seeing in this miracle of healing with Jesus and the blind man agrees with modern science. And therefore, there is not one miracle that takes two tries, but two miracles, one to heal his eyes and then one to calibrate his mind. So what appeared on the surface for years to be half a miracle upon investigation becomes two. Now, we could go on and talk about the Bible's truths regarding geology in Isaiah 40.12, the concept of the parallax in James 1.17, the atomic theory of matter in Hebrews 11.3, the expanding universe in Isaiah 40.22, the concept of air having weight in Job 28.25, and last but not least, hydrology in the Earth's water cycle, which man didn't discover until the 1600s. But Solomon spoke 3,000 years ago when he said this he, in Ecclesiastes 1.7. He said, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. It's a cycle. Listen, friends, there's so much more. And you are, you're so privileged to live in an age where information is at a click of a mouse. All you have to do is what? do a search, do a search, but it's not just science, it's prophecy, listen, many scholars consider the strongest proof or evidence as the validity of the Bible, it's prophecy, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21 reads, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things for prophecy never, never had its origin in the human will, but prophet's though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, don't let that word prophecy throw you off. It's just a Bible word that means a prediction that was made before it happened. Right. OK, so listen, friends, there, there, there is a mathematician named Peter Stoner who once headed the mathematics department at Pasadena City College, uh, also was the chair of science department at Westmont College and author of the book entitled Science Speaks. And he did an intense and extensive study on the probability, like the odds of a person actually coming along and fulfilling all the prophecies and predictions of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. You know what the odds, he, he wanted to know what the odds are. Okay, so he did a probability study. For instance, he said, what's the odds that one person would be born in Bethlehem? OK, and, 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 you know, because that's one of the messianic prophecies. So he came up with the, the uh, qualifying probability for that. Then he did another study on what's the odds that a person's cause of death would be crucifixion. And then he came up with the odds on that. And he did that with prophecy after prophecy. And then he factored them all together. But he only used eight to start with only eight, eight messianic prophecies, just, you know, just eight, mind you. And he came up with the odds of one person accidentally coming along and fulfilling those eight. And the probability was one and ten to the hundred and fifty-seventh power. Now, if you're not a mathematician, and let me let me help clear that up for you, okay? It'd be like this. It'd be like because it'd be like being the entire state of Texas, pretty big state, right? Entire state of Texas, the entire surface of Texas, filling it to two feet deep with silver coins, the entire state, and then taking a helicopter, picking a point to put it down in Texas, setting down, then reaching down. At one spot and one spot only, in the very first coin you pick up, that's the one. That's the probability of just eight messianic prophecies. Pretty incredible, right? But here's the rest of the story. Jesus, as the Messiah, did not only fulfill eight prophecies, there were over 300, and he fulfilled them all. Now, skeptics used to say, well, we can explain that. Uh, all those prophecies were written after Jesus was dead, OK? Like, after he lived and died, his followers, they went back in the Old Testament manuscripts and they inserted all these different details about the life of Jesus. That way, they'd all be true. Okay, so they rewrote history, was the claim. They went back and rewrote history. Like, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Let's put that one in there. Okay, okay, uh, he was betrayed by a friend. Let's put that one in there. And they said, fulfilled prophecy, that's easily explained because we don't have any manuscripts that predate Jesus. All right, so it could have been done after. Now, I'm not sure the leaders of the Jewish religion would have gone along with that, okay, or a lot, of, a lot of other reasons why that wouldn't be so, but for argument's sake, yeah, that was true. At that time, no manuscripts predated Jesus' life and death, none, until 1947, that is. in 1947 near quorum by the dead sea there was a shepherd boy that was playing with some rocks and he sailed one through the air and all of a sudden when it landed he heard some pottery break and so he went walking over and upon closer investigation by he and his family they found that they had unearthed a library that the jewish people had placed there during the war why because they wanted to protect the scriptures bottom line what they found there as they brought in the historians, and they brought in the archaeologists, and this was a, you, you can read up on this, I, I did a paper on this one, it's pretty fascinating, it took them a long time, because they had to unfurl these documents using set special equipment, quite the process, but what they found dated back to 300 years BC, and they looked at every single messianic prophecy, and you know, like, was he born in Bethlehem, yep, it's there, he's to be born of a virgin, yeah, it's there, betrayed by a friend, it's there, And they looked and they looked and they were all there. Every single one of those prophecies were there 300 B.C. All written before the life of Christ. Psalm chapter 22 is interesting. It describes in vivid detail the crucifixion of Jesus right down to every uh, jot and diddle. I mean, you read it, you can't mistake it. You're going, he's talking about the crucifixion. The psalmist about 1000 BC is talking about, is writing about Jesus Messiah, the future cru- crucifixion. And yeah, it's an interesting thing that crucifixions were not even invented then, but they're writing about it. How do you explain that? Because God wrote it through man. Very quickly, one more area that I want us to look at, and it's kind of going back to the Bible's indestructible, but this is the last reason. It's true for today. The Bible is true for today. Do you believe that, church family? Speak to me. Yeah, it's true for today. The Bible is trustworthy and true for today. I I hope you believe that, because if you do, then you're going to prove the odds wrong that we spoke about at the outset of this sermon, which were the odds against any of us as Christians having a bona fide biblical worldview. I mean, we've seen the evidence that over the centuries, mankind in rebellion against God has tried to destroy the scripture, tried to destroy God's word, the Bible, Right over and over again and many of those attempts were physical attempts physical attacks on physical bibles but the enemies of god today are doing it differently but make no mistake they're still trying to destroy christianity in christ church by destroying god's word and they're doing it by attacking its credibility and it's inerrancy, and its ability to be true in your culture today but a biblical review begins with the belief that god's word is still true for you today that not only is it credible, but it is alive and breathing and true for your best life today. You believe that? Yeah. In other words, it's practical and pertinent for your life today. See, some people say it's a really old manuscript. We're not even sure it's all accurate, but it, it's culturally outdated. You know, we have to use human reasoning, and that's, that's why no biblical worldview. And, and, uh, but I believe it is culturally relevant to us today. But you think? Yeah, well, let's let's try it out. What do you say? (laughs) Would you like to try it out, church? Okay, here we go, real quick. And we'll close with this, okay? For instance, the Bible says, do not worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Does that apply today? Is it pertinent today, yes? Yeah, yeah, it's pertinent. The Bible talks about the story of the Good Samaritan. In other words, it says, this is how you should treat your neighbor. Is that practical today? Pertinent today? Yeah, it is. It says, you knit me together in my parents' womb practical and pertinent today yeah it says don't wear yourselves out trying to get rich practical (sighs) yeah okay it says let us not give up meeting together as some in the habit are doing practical pertinent today yes it says let there be no sexual immorality among you the marriage bed is to be honored by all you think that's important to marriages today it is listen friends you know what else the bible says The Bible claims that God has spoken to us his living word and that his word is sufficient for life. And all God's people said, let's pray that it might be so.